Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan Lust, Dan Wallach, we are back again. Dan, how's it going? It's going pretty well. You know, I'm excited. Anytime we get to devote an episode to my favorite topic of sports wagering, those gets the you know the blood flowing, and I'm, I'm truly excited about this week's episode. Everything is going great. I've never been busier with with some work. Things are going really well. If you see me off Twitter, that must mean you know I'm just knee deep in some you know work project. So I'm glad to be back in the saddle and uh, recording another episode with you, Dan. You and I both, Dan. My uh, I get the analytics on my tweets every month. I, I look up uh, how many tweets I've done and engagement. My tweets, for better or for worse, have gone down in terms of volume since I started this new job. But busy, new job good. syndrome. Busy is good though. We're still coming at you guys twice a week. You'll always find us here if you can't find us on Twitter and other forms of social. So, Dan, we have, uh, as you alluded to, we have a, a sports betting heavy episode. Dan, uh, this week we almost led with topics. You know, Antonio Brown was involved in a standoff with police where he reportedly had guns. And then and it turned out he was not involved in the standoff at all. Dan, my favorite, another story that just was not a real story. Uh, Drew Brees got struck by lightning. And then it turned out to be a promo for PointsBet. So a um, betting company. A, I mean, a it betting all, company. Yeah, they, it all comes back full circle, Dan. Everything I, revolves around sports betting. I will say, can't always everything you see on Twitter. Let's put it that way. Well, listen, there's a natural Sorry. instinct, right? There's a natural instinct to want to be first on stories, to break stories, but you got to use your head sometimes. And, you know, we, we're not journalists operating on Twitter. You know, we don't have to see corroboration directly from the source. But I mean, some of the stuff, you know, you really have to sort of think about for a second. And sometimes it's better to, you know, hold fire than to put something out for which there's no, you know, no return. And nobody, nobody can speak to that issue better than the proprietor of the arson judge tweet. I was going to say, what, Dan, what a transition. Okay. By the way, John Heyman, he's a great, great columnist for the New York <laughs> Post. He's probably has some, uh, you know, wounds this week from his premature tweet. Not only, I mean, it's, it's one of the all-time great tweets. First ballot, first ballot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First ballot Hall of Fame tweet. Unfortunately, he deleted it. If he really understood the magnitude of it, he would have left it intact because it's a great tweet. He's he's a he's an exceptional. Let's lay out some context here. I'm not sure you and I are in the yeah. weeds. We we know what this is. You know, Dan. You know, I am a San Francisco Giants fan. I have my uh, San Francisco baseball right here. You know, uh-huh. made, you know, been a fan for the team forever. My dad was an old school New York Giants fan, so I'm a San Francisco Giants fan living in New York. So I I'm certainly was seeing the pros and cons to judge staying with the hometown Yankees or going to back to San Francisco. So there was a brief seven minute window where John Heyman sends out a tweet that says, it looks like, it says Arson Judge looking like he's heading to the Giants. Now, Arson Judge, not Aaron Judge's name. And of course, it led to all these memes, but that's what made the tweet a legendary Hall of Fame tweet. And, And I feel bad for John. John's one of the best baseball writers around. You know, he works out at the same gym that I do. We're both Miami based. We're at the same gym and we're both blowing up on Twitter, him for the wrong reasons, however, but he's he's still one of the best in the business. And I think the arson aspect of it will give it an eternal life. So the tweet lived for about seven minutes without being clarified at a time where the Giants had proposed their own $360 million offer to Aaron Judge. So what it seems like happened, Giants proposed a giant $360 million deal. And the Yankees said, Aaron, we'll match it. We'll match whatever you get elsewhere. Come on home, buddy. Yeah, I think a missed opportunity. Someone in my office was saying, why didn't they make the deal $362 million? Aaron Judge just hit 600, you know, just hit 62 homers. Probably should have done that. But Dan, to close the loop on a prior story, we we had said that the guy, the Texas Rangers fan that caught that 
60-second home run ball. You know, this guy, what was he doing? If, he, if Judge goes to the Giants, the ball is going to be worth considerably less. But now Judge is going to seemingly retire as a member of the New York Yankees. Signs a nine-year deal as a 30-year-old. will take him to his 39-year-old season. That ball, I think, you know, directly is worth a lot more money because he's going to be in pinstripes the rest of his career. So the guy took a little bit of a risk, a little bit of a risk, but it looks like it's going to pay off. Here. Well, arguably, he's still taking a risk, Dan, because with Aaron Judge coming back to play for the Yankees, who's to say he won't hit 63 next year or 64? So I'll say I'll say know, that, Dan. I'll okay, that. so the holder of that baseball really has up to the next year to try to sell it because it could lose value depending upon Aaron Judge's, you know, future home run hitting exploits. But I think it goes to prove that with Judge resigning with the Yankees, and by the way, maybe John Heyman deserves a little bit of a commission here for maybe hastening the Yankees' upgraded offer because maybe the Yankees began to realize how close this really was based on that tweet. But I think this proves that there really wasn't collusion. Or maybe it does prove that there was collusion between the Mets and the Yankees because the Mets spent considerable amount of money to go after Justin Verlander, yet they weren't in on the Aaron Judge negotiation. So maybe that investigation wrapped up a little bit too soon. You can't really prove what no one's willing to talk about. But I think it's a fascinating, you know, ending to a, I guess, a saga that I didn't think was going to end well for the Yankees. You know, maybe I'm just somebody who holds grudges, Dan, because once the Yankees betrayed Aaron Judge by revealing their last best contract offer during spring training. And basically, teams never like to reveal what the contract details are. You know, per club policy, you know, financial terms are undisclosed. Yet the Yankees were all too willing to publicize the offer, the amount of the offer that Aaron Judge declined, basically portray him as, as a selfish player who wasn't willing to take one of the most lucrative contract offers in baseball history. I might have held that against the Yankees. And Aaron Judge made comments along those lines in his Time Magazine article. Article. If you'd asked me where this was going to end up two hours ago, I would say he's definitely going to the Giants because yeah. of the way the Yankees handled it. And also, not only did they lowball him in spring training, but I felt coming in at eight years, 300 was designed to come up as the second place finisher so that they could save face with their fans. I truly believe the Yankees weren't willing to go as high as nine and 360, but I guess I was wrong. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it would obviously surprise me if, if Judge did not end up with the Yankees, but neither here nor there, they were going to pay. They were going to pay. Yankees fans were certainly going to be annoyed. Their team was no longer operating like the biggest market team in baseball. Okay, Dan, let's do this. We had two topics on the docket today. We are not talking about, uh, again, Drew Brees getting struck by lightning or Antonio Brown almost getting into a shootout with police, none of which actually happened. But again, again, you can't believe everything you see on Twitter. Guest today, we have State Senator Denny Hoskins, Missouri State Senator, talk a little bit of sports betting. Dan, you're going to handle that one. Big issue, Dan. The show me state hasn't shown us anything on legalized sports betting. They're like five years in the making. So he's the key person on legal sports betting in Missouri. It all is going to flow through him. So he's going to join us for basically the inside scoop on what's going to take place during the upcoming legislative session. A great get by you, Dan, as, as typical. And then last but not least, we're going to bring on Trent Rysmith from a publication called The Bloody Elbow, the guy that we've had involvement with in the past. He's never been on the show, but someone that uh, you know I speak to fairly uh, you know, every once in a while on, on the in the Twitterverse. So uh, Trent is doing a kind of deep dive into this James Krause you know, situation over in the UFC and really how they're kind of carving out their sports betting guidelines, potential legal liability that could result maybe some class action lawsuits resembling what we saw from the Houston Astros sign ceiling scandal. So this happens to be a pretty busy week in the sports betting legal universe. Dan, first up, we're going to have Denny Hoskins on. Do you want to kind of lay out a little bit of your conversation? Yeah, the Missouri legislative session begins on January 4th. When we last left the state legislature, there was this battle going on over whether video lottery terminals 
these like, you know, slot machine type devices that are in bars, restaurants, you know, veterans organizations, fraternal organizations that stood in the way of a sports betting bill being passed in Missouri because the casinos didn't want any competition from these VLT type devices. And those were the devices that basically prevented a sports betting bill from getting passed. Not only did he'll tell us how it went down, how the casinos opposed the sports betting bill that didn't even include video lottery terminals. And then he's going to preview how he expects to get this over the finish line over the course of the next couple of months. He's bullish and optimistic that sports betting will finally be legalized in Missouri. And for you, you and I, we know full well how passionate and enthusiastic the, the fan base is in Missouri about sports. We lived that with the St. Louis Rams relocation lawsuit that we had covered for several months. St. Louis is one of the most avid sports markets around. And I think this state really deserves to have a, a legal sports betting environment. And, so, and, and we're down to like less than 15 states that don't even have a sports betting law. And it all begins with Senator Denny Hoskins. His bill was titled Senate Bill 1 because as a senior member of the state Senate, he gets the first slot on pre-filed bills. And that hopefully, in his view, I think he expects that there will be expedited treatment on the issue of sports betting this year. So we'll get all into that with Senator Hoskins, a really fascinating discussion, a lot of new details that are emerging about what will likely take place in the next session. Okay, that's a good place to put it. Before we kick it over to Denny Hoskins, a reminder, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. Again, uh, we, say it, we say it every so often, but again, use our promo code CONDUCT for a special discount over there if you want to find out exactly how much it is. It's a lot. That's all you need to know. Or you can reach out to me directly. I'm happy to hook you up. There are other bar prep companies, but we uh, continue to appreciate all of our Conduct Detrimental listeners that continue to support Themis and you know, obviously, we are the top uh, sports law podcast in the galaxy, but you know, we, we are happy that you guys are continuing to push the missing direction of being the top bar prep company in the entire universe. Dan, is universe bigger than galaxy or is it the same thing? I think universe is bigger than galaxy. Yeah, they're both pretty expansive. Uh, you know, if you're top five in the galaxy, you're, pr- you're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Okay. So without further ado, let us kick it over to Senator Hoskins. Okay. As we Head towards the end of calendar year 2022, we're looking ahead to the sports betting legislative landscape in 2023. While there are 35 states or 36 states that have already legalized sports betting, there are some big states that remain out there, California, Texas, Florida, but alongside them are states like Georgia and Missouri, Missouri in particular has been involved in the sports wagering discussion over the last three or four years. They've come close, have passed legislation out of one chamber of the state legislature, but ultimately it did not go all the way with two houses approving. And we begin again in 2023. And what better guest on the subject or state of sports betting in Missouri that that we could possibly have than the chair of the Senate Economic Development Committee in Missouri. Welcome to Conduct Detrimental, Senator Hoskins. Yes, thanks for having me, Dan. All right. So a question I have for you, leading right off the bat, there are 15 or so states that haven't yet legalized sports wagering. Missouri has been down this path a couple of times. You have this rivalry going on with Kansas. Do you feel any sense of added pressure or responsibility to make legal sports betting happen in Missouri in 2023? Is this this the year? I I truly do think that this is the year. You know, at the end of last session in 2022, we actually came up with a bill that everybody agreed to besides some of the casinos. Uh, The professional sports teams agreed to it. It had a a higher tax rate and an amount of fees that would cover 
uh, the revenue shortfall that our veterans homes and cemeteries are experiencing this year. However, the bill sponsor in the Senate said he was not going to bring it up unless all the casinos agreed to it. And unfortunately, all the casinos did not agree to it. And so uh, therefore it, it died the last couple of weeks of session. But I'm very hopeful that this year in, in 2023, we've got some new centers coming in as well as some centers that have historically been against uh, gaming in any form, whether that's bingo, whether that's video lottery terminals, whether that's uh, casinos or sports book. And many of the new incoming freshmen are more open to the idea of legalizing sports book as well as BLTs in the state. Um, you mentioned the casinos. And when you raise the issue of casinos, the first you know word association game that comes to mind is video lottery terminals. Is that yes. where the casino opposition largely centers on? Well, uh, you know, like I said, at the end of a session in 2022, we had a sports book only bill and the casinos were against it. Basically, they they want everything. They want their cake and yeah. icing and and everything in between. And, and so they were against a sports book only bill at the end of last session. Yes, casinos are, are typically against video lottery terminals, although many of the casinos own video lottery terminal routes, uh, mm -hmm. such as in states like Illinois and Pennsylvania. And video lottery terminals are basically like video poker machines. So many of these casinos are already in that business. Uh, there are, are some casinos that have reached out and said that, hey, video lottery terminals, it doesn't matter to them. They're, they're neutral on the issue. Uh, they would just like to see sportsbook passed. And then I've had uh, some uh, bigger casinos that have said that they are against uh, video lottery terminals. And they basically see them as competition to themselves and don't want to see anything with video lottery terminals passed. Yeah, but your new bill, Senate Bill 1, limits the number of video lottery terminals to like eight, right? For, yes. for you know, VFW, I guess, veteran organizations, truck stops, fraternal organizations. And then you also have, you know, business entities licensed to sell liquor by the drink. Right. So you have a cap on the yes. number of VLTs per location. When I think of, you know, a casino environment or slot machines, I'm walking into a, the floor of a casino, I'm seeing a thousand or two thousand slot machines. Right of all different you know, shapes, stripes, and sizes, the variety exists. Yes. Why do they think, and is it reasonable for the casino industry to believe that up to eight of these video perker terminals in truck stops and VFW halls are going to pose a competitive threat to their industry? Is it centered on just, is it just the principle of it? Or is the sort of how widespread it would be throughout the state? You know, that's been my question with casinos as well. When you know, these video lottery terminals that would be in truck stops and, and bars and taverns, would they would have between five and eight in there. They would be in a separate room. They would be monitored. You have to be 21 to go in there. The maximum bet in a VLT machine would be $5 with a maximum winning of $1,100. So when you compare that to going to casino and, uh, you know, some of these slot machines and, and video poker machines, you can bet $25, you can bet $50 a, a, a game versus $5, I really think that it's a different market. You know, when my wife and I or some of my friends and I say, hey, let's go to the casino and, and maybe play some blackjack and maybe see a concert and, and uh, eat a nice dinner, none of them had said, hey, instead, why don't we go over to Illinois or maybe we'll go to a truck stop here in Missouri and eat some pepperonis and play $5 a game BLTs. It's, it's just a totally different demographic and a totally different market, in my opinion. You know, it's, you know, my wife has never said, hey, let's go to the truck stop and eat 
hot dogs on a roller and play BLTs. Now she has said, hey, let's go to a casino and uh, partake in some of the things that they have there. I agree. It's a, it's a different amenity and a different experience, but maybe, you know, play devil's advocate, truck stops, veterans organizations, fraternal organizations, that sounds kind of limited along with yes. this. But I think if you include business entities that sell liquor by the drink, we're really talking bars and restaurants in every municipal, yeah. every city all over the state. You could potentially have thousands of VLT establishments. Is there any thought to paring down the number of locations in your bill to strike a deal? I've had, tried to have many discussions with casinos regarding video lottery terminals, and their answer is always no. It's no. It doesn't matter what the question is on VLT, the answer is no. Now, I have several uh, bar and, and tavern and restaurant owners in my district, especially here in, in the town of Warrensburg, that would love to have video lottery terminals legalized because that would provide them an extra form of revenue to their business. Uh, Sportsbook doesn't move the needle for them. There is no money for our local uh, VFWs, American Legions, truck stops, bars, and taverns if Sportsbook is legalized. They're going to be anyone that uses Sportsbook, should it be legalized, you'll be betting on their phone. It doesn't drive any business to the truck stops, bars, and taverns, and fraternal organizations. So they really see legalization of, of the VLTs as a way to bring in extra money. And when we talk about where that funds would go, gaming revenue or gambling revenue in the state of Missouri, according to the Missouri Constitution, the income tax from that has to go toward education. So any money that comes in from the taxes on that has to go toward education. It can't go to administering uh, those type of, of gambling devices for the Missouri Gaming Commission to you know, make sure that everything's regulated, running properly. It can't go to that for video lottery terminals, but the fees can. The fees can basically go anywhere we, we want them to go. And so uh, the fees for the sports book as well as the video lottery terminals can go toward veterans organizations, uh, for veterans homes and veterans cemeteries. I have a veterans cemetery as well as a veterans home in my district that are very important to me. I also have uh, Whiteman Air Force Base, home of the B-2 bomber. We have a lot of veterans uh, in my district. And so the fees from that can go to help plug the $50 million shortfall that our veterans' homes and cemeteries are experiencing this year. So basically this year, we had to supplement our veterans' homes and cemeteries budget by about $50 million from revenue. And so that's what I'm trying to do is to make sure that our veterans' homes and cemeteries are taken care of. A sports book in the state would only bring in about $10 million. Uh, so that's a, that's $40 million short. Video lottery terminals would bring in about $250 million to the state overall. Even at those low limits of, you mentioned, I think the most that a machine would pay out would be 1100 and there'd be right. betting limits. You'd still generate yes. or expect to generate in excess of $100 million annually? In excess of $250 million annually, Yes. Explain the difference between the fees and the taxes. The taxes, the tax rate, I guess, would be 36% on the yes. revenues. Those would yes. have to be earmarked for public education? Yeah, so taxes would be 36%. 32% would go to the state, and 4% would go to the local municipality. If it was located in the town, it would go to the you know the city. If it was located out in the country, it would go toward you know the county government. And so VLTs, in my bill, would be taxed at 36%. Sportsbook... Okay. Uh, would be taxed at 10%. Senator, what are the fees that would go to the, you know, veterans organizations and the, you know, those other other groups you mentioned? What are the fees like the um, annual 
like lease or license fees for yes for each machine. Yes, there, that's right. There would be annual fees that would go toward each machine, and have, I'm blanking on how many how much fees per machine I put in my bill. I've got my bill brought up, but I think it was three hundred. Three hundred or three thousand? Yeah, think. I think I think it was around there. And so those fees on the VLTs would be more than enough to cover the revenue shortfall for our veterans' homes and cemeteries. The fees in sports book, I think it's hundred thousand for the first license, and then two hundred fifty thousand for the second license, and five hundred thousand dollars if they won the third license are not enough to cover uh, the shortfall in revenue. And so the fees are, are really what generates a good portion of that revenue to cover the shortfall for our veterans' homes and cemeteries. What are you hearing from your constituents on this issue, both on the sportsbook side and on the VLT side? I know what you want to hope to accomplish, but what are your constituents telling you? Yeah, my constituents, uh, the vast majority, are first on sportsbook, they want to see sportsbook pass. They, they'd like to bet on sportsbook. Uh, many of them think that the state will bring in millions and millions of dollars in revenue for Sportsbook. However, if we just look across the border in Kansas, that's simply not happening. I think for the first two months that Sportsbook was legalized in Kansas, September and October, they brought in, I think, for combined for two months, $275,000 in revenue to the state. So that equates to about $1.65 million annualized. That's just not a lot of money. It will take, then, it'll take them a, a century, a hundred years or more to lure over the Kansas City Chiefs. If they're earmarking 80% of their tax collections towards luring a professional sports franchise, I don't know how many years it's going to take to get an NFL. Right. Is, is that driving any of your you know thoughts on the issue that this notion that you've already lost one NFL team and your next door neighbor has not made any bones about the fact that they want to steal the Kansas City Chiefs, whose lease, I believe, runs until 2032 in Arrowhead. Is there any part of that that's creating a, a sense of urgency or you're not worried at all? You know, I've had discussions with the Chiefs and most certainly I think their first priority is to stay here in the state of Missouri. At one point, if Kansas is trying to put together an economic package of $1.6 million a year is all they can put into it because of their low fees and low tax rate in order to get sportsbook in the state of Kansas, like you said, it's going to take 100 years for them to build up even a, a little bit of a nest egg in order to try and lure them over. So that may not, that may not even be enough for a task force. Right. Right. Exactly. Have the Chiefs given you any assurances or made any kind of, I guess, list of, of asks for a commitment to stay in the state of Missouri? You know, no, I've had several discussions with, with the Chiefs. However, you know, like I said, I, I think their first priority is to be here in the state of Missouri. You know, I know Kauffman Stadium and the Royals, the Royals have said that they would uh, like to consider moving into a downtown stadium you know, on the Kansas City, Missouri side. And if that were to happen, I could see the Chiefs uh, possibly tearing down Kauffman Stadium and building a new football stadium on its footprint because literally Kauffman Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium currently are right, are in the same parking lot. They're literally you know, a few hundred feet away from each other and with a huge parking lot surrounding it. And so if the Royals do decide to move downtown, I think the Chiefs would love to build a brand new stadium where Kauffman Stadium sits. And then while it's being built, continue to play in Arrowhead Stadium. And then uh, once the new stadium is being built, possibly tear down Arrowhead Stadium and put in, you know, a new entertainment district there. Yeah, you're seeing uh, across the country, state legislatures are basically giving NFL teams 
boatloads of public money to refurbish and or construct new stadiums in, in New York, Governor Hockle's budget bill last year earmarked, I think it was close to 700 million in New York state monies towards the construction of a, of a new stadium for the bills. Tennessee is, I think, guaranteeing or about to guarantee a similar amount of money to the Tennessee Titans. Is the Missouri legislature in a position to agree to some kind of public stadium, you know, public financing of a new stadium. I know, I know there's a lot of controversy around that, you know, ar around the league, but the teams are always able to pit states against one another. And there's this implicit threat to relocate, whether it's real or imagined. Is there an appetite in Missouri to prevent a second relocation of an in-state franchise by making sure that there's enough public money available to build construct and develop a new stadium for the for the chiefs you know I, I would say nothing's ever off the table but probably the appetite in the missouri legislature right now is uh, not to put taxpayer money to help support a billion dollar business whether that's the chiefs the royals and, and things like that so i know there's other economic tools that our department of economic development has in order to maybe help facilitate that in one of the prior versions of my uh, sportsbook bill, I actually had part of the fees uh, for sportsbook go into a fund to help with infrastructure in and around those stadiums. And whether it be, you know, new pedestrian overpasses, new parking lights, and things like that. However, uh, that is not in the current version of the bill. All right. Well, let's turn to Senate bill number one. Yes. Wasted no time in pre-filing a bill on the, I think it was on the first day it that was three lawmakers were able to pre-file bills on December 1st. The legislative session doesn't begin until January 4th. Were you trying to send a message? Was there some, you know, symbolism behind, you know, being the first lawmaker to introduce a sports wagering slash VLT bill? Yeah, so most certainly. And, you know, the name of the bill is Honoring Veterans and, and Supporting Missouri Education Act, because Truly, I want to make sure that we honor our commitment to our veterans and our veterans' homes and cemeteries, as well as help support education in our state. And so as the most senior senator in Missouri, I basically have the first three bill slots. And, and so I filed Senate Bill 1 in order to uh, make sure that, hey, this is at the forefront. Uh, funding education, funding our veterans' homes and cemeteries is a top priority. And I went and round and visited with many of my Senate colleagues as well as my House colleagues to talk to them and say, hey, I'd really like to get this done. You know, some of the senators that have been opposed to gambling and, and gaming in the state are have were turned out and replaced, like I said, by uh, some senators that are more open to gaming and sportsbook and VLTs in the state. And so, yes, I wanted to send a message that this is very important. It's very important that we honor our commitment to veterans. And it's very important, I think, that we get this offer played. I was the first one to offer a sports book only amendment when the Supreme Court, I believe that was five or six years ago, said, hey, it's up to the states to decide. Well, it was when the Supreme Court of the United States said that it was up to the states to decide, deadline to file a bill for sports book only had passed. And that's why I had filed an amendment in order to try and get this passed at the end of session. Uh, since then, I've learned a lot more about sports book in the state we in other states we've seen what other states have done with a, a tax up to 50 percent and a tax all the way down to six percent we've seen that uh, the state of illinois i believe had to add an additional 10 million dollars for their compulsive gambling fund 
because they saw so much of an increase in compulsive problem gambling in their state. We saw the state of Michigan, I think, added $8 million more for problem compulsive gambling. So we've seen uh, what a lot of these states have done. We've seen what their tax rate is, their fees are, the problems they've caused, some of the good things that have come out. And, and you know, people like to bet on, on sporting events. And, and so we've really dissected a lot of that research and data in order to try and come up with the best bill here for the state of Missouri. Well, I noticed that your current bill, SB1, differs in several material respects from the bill you sponsored last year, which was SB643. Yes. Right. Last year, you, you topped out at a tax rate of 21%. Correct. This bill has a tax rate of only 10%. Is that something that, looking at how other states are taxing sports books, influenced your perspective on? Well, what is the reason uh, you know, we we looked at what other states are doing. Now, some of the other states have up to 20%. I think Illinois has up to 20%. Uh, Tennessee has up to 20%. Nebraska has up to 20%. Arkansas is higher. We looked at the state of Kansas, which I think has 10%. And so we just looked what the industry was doing. Basically, this is what the casinos wanted. I, I'm there. The sportsbook portion of the bill is everything the casinos wanted. As far as tax rate, they wanted lower fees especially some of the smaller casinos wanted a lower fee versus the $1 million fee that I had there in the past. And so we really took a look at, at everything there. And we also looked at the state of Kansas, which, like I said, is going to bring in annually about $1.6 million on Sportsbook, which is just a drop in the bucket. I think Kansas really, in order to get Sportsbook passed quickly and try and do it before Missouri, they just gave away everything to the casinos. And most certainly, I don't want to do that. I don't even, I think Kansas, I don't even think put any money for problem and compulsive gambling. So I think how much, Kansas- How much would, does your bill have for problem gambling? I think it was $5 million? $5 million. $5 million I put. And and based on, on talking to some of the compulsive and problem gambling associations and organizations, they thought that $5, $5 million would uh, definitely cover it. And so that's how, that's why I put that in my bill. I, th I think it's an understatement for you to say that you listened to the casinos. Not only did you keep the tax rate fairly low at 10%, but you gave the casinos three the, the opportunity for up to three yes. skins, three mobile skins to basically create, was it 39 individually branded websites, plus probably some of the, some of the pro sports team participations. Why were you willing to triple the number of you know mobile sports betting brands to go from one to three per casino? Well, I think in prior bills, we did have three. However, we started off with a higher uh, rate for the first skin, like a million dollars for the first skin, and then 800000 for the second skin and things like that. However, this, this year, uh, we really listened to some smaller casinos that said that, hey, $1 million doesn't work for them on the first skin, and they would like to see a lower amount for the first skin and then increase uh, if they wanted a second or third skin. So I could see some of the smaller casinos in the state buy only one skin, and some of the bigger casinos in the state might utilize all three skins when they partner up. This also allows the professional sports teams, I believe. In the past, we've only given them one skin. I, it, this may, and I need to go back and look for sure, but it may allow the professional sports teams to purchase additional skins as well. But, you know, just listening to what uh, many of the, the casino said was a problem. Uh, last year, with some of the language of the bill, we just try to be, hey, hey, this is what the casinos want. Um, I think we can get to what they say that they need, but with a lower tax rate and fees. But you know, even when we look at states that have a higher tax rate, 
like New Jersey and New York have a high tax rate. People are still betting in New Jersey and New York, uh, even with a much higher tax rate. And so in the end, I just really would like to get this done over the next, I'm in the legislature for two more years. I'd like to get this done over the next two years. And, you know, the casino should not have any qualms about anything on the sports book part of the bill. Well, they, you listen to them now yes. to reciprocate. Will the casinos give in or compromise in any respect on the issue of VLTs? I mean, can, if that doesn't happen, can your bill well, pass? Can sports betting even pass without the VLT piece to it? Right. I think, you know, talking to my, visiting with many of my colleagues, I have a lot of colleagues that are supportive of video lottery terminals. A lot of them are support sports book. A lot of them are supportive of both of them it would have a very slim chance of passing. A sportsbook only bill would have a very slim chance of passing without video lottery terminals. And it, like I said, it comes back to funding. I'm trying to fund my, I have a, a dedicated funding source for our veterans homes and cemeteries. Sportsbook only bill is going to bring in, I mean, once you take out $5 million from compulsive gambling, about $2 million to administer the program, there will be about $3 million uh, left. That's a drop in the bucket to what our veterans homes and cemeteries need. I mean, it's $47 million short. So if we want to have a dedicated only funding source uh, to honor our veterans, uh, we have to pass video lottery terminals as well. Yeah, you felt so strongly about that issue during the last year's session that is you gave a four hour filibuster. Is that is that accurate? I did, I did talk for about uh, four hours and talk about the differences between sports book and video lottery terminals. I, I talked about our veterans homes and cemeteries, how much money that they need. I talked about how much if we would pass a sports book only bill that basically it would not cover, in my opinion, the cost that were associated with it under that version of the bill that I thought that taxpayers would be supplementing sports book players in the state because uh, the fees and the tax rate wasn't high enough. But when we combine those two things together, video lottery terminals and uh, sports book, then together they'll provide over. $260 million to the state. And so together, it, it makes sense. Uh, separately, uh, they do not. Let, let's find you know, the final, I guess, topic, the issue of timing. The issue of sports betting went through a blender last year during the legislative session. It basically went from pillar to post, and you were battling it out, you know, basically right through the end of the legislative session, which was only a little over six months ago. Now right. it looks like you're poised to get a little bit of a running start on the issue of sports betting. Is there a sense that with a session that could theoretically last until May 30th, five plus months, is there a sense that there's going to be momentum and at least energy devoted to this early on in the session so you don't run out of you know runway and run out of time? Yes, I, I believe so. So typically in the state of Missouri, the bills can't be referred to our first day of session on January 4th. And they have to refer those bills in order. So as Senate Bill 1, uh, this bill will, will be referred to committee on the first day. My hope that it's referred to my committee on economic development. That seems to make the most sense and seems to be where it fits. And then I'm hopeful that uh, the second week of session, we can have a committee hearing on that and proceed forward. Like I said, I've talked to many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, Republican, Democrat. Uh, they all want to put this issue to bed. They want to see something pass. They want to find a dedicated funding source for our veterans homes and cemeteries. And uh, they'd also like to, you know, have sports book in the state as well as video lottery terminals, help out some of our small business owners that uh, would love to see VLTs and provide a little bit of competition to the casinos. 
How soon before it can get to a floor vote in the Senate once it clears your committee, if it goes to a your committee and you hold a hearing and presumably an early enough vote? How optimistic are you that it gets to a vote by March? You know, my, my hope is that uh, we would have a bring this up on the floor within the first month of session. So if session starts January 4th, I mean, there's certain procedures that we have to go through as far as committees of being referred to committee, having committee hearing. Typically, we wait a week to have a vote in committee on, on a particular bill. And so my hope is that we could bring this up within the first month of session. Do you have any partners on the House side that are going to be sort of in parallel with your efforts? Because it actually happened in reverse during last year's legislative session. The House, you know, quickly, I guess, towards the end, we're sort of in lockstep on the sports right. betting bill until it came to you on the Senate side. And then it sort of that's when it really lost the momentum because of you know certain aspects of the bill. Do you right. have a partner on the House side that will advance similar legislation? Yeah, I've been I've been in discussions with many of the state reps over there. I know uh, state rep Dan Houks is has filed a sports book only bill in the House. It's very similar to the one that he passed last year that would generate about gross about ten million dollars to the state. I believe Representative uh, Hartwig is filing a video lottery terminal only bill, or he may do a combo bill. I don't think that he's filed that, but he is he is in preparing to file that bill. So. There's there's definitely some gaming bills over in the House that, that will be filed. And I would I think they could file bills up until maybe the end of February. So I, I would foresee a, a few more gaming bills come through before then. All right. As we end this segment, let's look ahead. Fast forward to Memorial Day 2023. Yes. You're in your backyard. You're having, you know, your barbecue. What is the gambling landscape in Missouri going to look like? Are we going to have a sports bet, a sports book, mobile and retail? And are we going to have VLT? Where do you see this thing ending up? If I was a betting man, I would say that yes, we will we will pass some version of sports book as well as, well as video lottery terminals this this year in the Missouri legislature. I, I think it's time we beat this around for too many years. Uh, we have a lot of momentum going forward. Uh, the state needs the money for the our veterans' homes and cemeteries in order to honor commitment to them. This will be a dedicated funding source. So yes, I, I believe that we will definitely pass a version of both this year. Well, thank you. I and millions of Missourians and those who travel to Missouri wish you a lot of luck in your quest to bring legal sports book to the state of Missouri. I want to thank you for accepting the invitation to join Conduct Detrimental. I hope you enjoyed your time on, on the podcast. This was very illuminating. I learned a lot about sure. the sort of the mechanics of what drives the discussion around gaming policy in the state of Missouri. I'd love to have you back if you have time later on in the session as we get closer to the finish line. Most certainly. Thanks for having me, Dan, and I'd be glad to come back anytime. All right. Thank you very much. That's Senator Denny Hoskins, the chair of the Missouri Senate Economic Development Committee, running lead point primetime player on the issue of legal sports betting and video lottery terminal gaming in the state of Missouri. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Senator Hoskins. So that was Senator Denny Hoskins. Uh, Dan, a great conversation. Anything uh, anything that you want to leave our listeners with that you guys didn't touch upon? I share his optimism, but I think it's going to be a, a, pr a pretty bruising, bloody battle in the state legislature. It'll probably come down to the wire, as it usually does in all these contentious states. And, and and I haven't seen a state other than maybe California and Florida that had this type of, you know, the heels dug in, opposing groups. There, there are so many factors that are going to go into this you know, decision. And I think the, the lines in the sand have been drawn. The casino industry of Missouri, and there are 13 casinos, they don't want competition. 
from bars and 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 this is not about just VFW halls. It's having um, uh, VLT devices in bars and restaurants throughout the state. I think for the casino industry, they view that as a threat to their survival. I think their concerns are overstated, to be quite honest. But I think they're willing to sacrifice sports betting in order to keep VLTs from encroaching upon their, you know, their, their market share. And it's going to come down to whether sports betting can be approved without VLTs. And I think Denny Hoskins was right on point. And he said, last year, he gave a four-hour filibuster. He gave a four-hour filibuster to block the bill. And I don't, I think given his posture and commitment to the veterans, funeral homes, I mean, there's a, there's a, a huge constituency that he's representing. I think there's no way that sports betting is going to pass without VLT authorization included. The solution here, I think, is to maybe narrow the proliferation of these devices, maybe not have them in, in every bar and restaurant, maybe put a cap, overall cap statewide on how many there can be. But that's an issue that can threaten and sink the sports betting bill and inexplicably leave Missouri yet again on the sidelines. And Denny Hoskins isn't going anywhere. Dan, he's going to be in office for two more years. So they're going to have to deal with them. And make a compromise because he's already made the he's already made the compromise to the casino industry. Now the industry needs to reciprocate and meet him, if not halfway, at least part of the way. A little bit of legislation. Let's talk about some brewing litigation. Back on November 5th, there was a UFC fight involving Derek Minner in his corner was UFC coach, guy by the name of James Krauss. So why uh, lay it out with Trent? I don't want to bury the whole lead, but some incredibly suspicious betting patterns leading up to that fight. You know, there's, it's not really that odd for odds to move right before a fight's supposed to start, but for them to be so specific on Derek Minner losing in the first round by a knockout and for the fight to go less than two and a half rounds. And when the fight starts, Dan, I believe the fight was over in less than a minute and it looked like a kind of prior knee injury. It wasn't like a hard strike to knock the guy down. So what's kind of happened since then, there's been an investigation as to whether and to what extent insider information was being passed along by this guy, James Krause, the coach, or by the fighter, Derek Minner, to other individuals. And, and Dan, why we wanted to cover this, James Krause is not just a former UFC fighter. He's not just a, a, you know, a UFC coach, a current UFC coach. He's a guy that's in the business of giving out betting picks. So talk about a conflict of interest, Dan. So yeah, I think a fantastic topic for our show and maybe a, a topic that will result in some litigation here. Well, I, I think before we we turn it to to Trent, I think while this is a black eye for the industry, for UFC, and maybe even for sports books, it underscores the vital role that a regulated, transparent legal sports betting environment plays. Because by virtue of there being legal betting on this fight in Nevada and elsewhere, the Nevada State Gaming Commission got involved. The bet monitoring company, I think, U.S. Integrity, detected the you know wild fluctuations in the line movement. So without a legal sports betting framework in the United States, this might have gone unnoticed within the US and and there would have been no recourse. But because you have active regulators that are that are you know tracking this and you have bet monitoring companies like US Integrity, Sport Radar, Genius that are engaged Genius Sports that are engaged by betting companies in every regulated environment, there's a system that's in place, a detection system. It may be imperfect. It might be capable of even greater improvement because what we're lacking right now is an integrated national clearinghouse for wagers. Instead, it's being handled on an operator by operator basis in accordance with state requirements of all these different states. And there may be breakdowns in information sharing and cross-border cooperation. But this is a situation where it was vital to have the regulated industry, the regulators and the, the bet monitors be basically the first line of defense here. And it worked. 
And yeah, maybe maybe there are going to be some repercussions and lawsuits that follow. But I think this is a turning point moment for the sports betting industry and for regulatory bodies, because how could gaming commissions all across the country have allowed wagers to be placed on UFC matches when the company doesn't even have a betting policy, doesn't have any internal compliance? Fighters could be betting on their own matches or other people's matches, and the UFC has nothing to say about it. And it's very ironic that the Canadian regulators are the ones taking the lead. You know, Alberta, Ontario, they basically put a an immediate ban on accepting wagers on UFC events. So I think this is a call for a moment of reflection and inflection on maybe paying greater attention to the individual sports, such as MMA events, tennis matches, because these threats and risks are going to consistently hover over the regulated sports betting industry, because no matter how much detection tools are available, temptations are always going to exist. And the type of relationship that existed here with the manager, the fighter, his side business selling gambling picks, this was like a giant red flag that nobody spoke out about until after it happened. There's been some comments, and I've read some comments from former fighters with respect to this coach, James Krause, that Maybe he did uh, went one step too far, one step too far. And now kind of the walls are coming in. So in any event, let's get into it with Trent. Been writing a ton about this particular story. So yeah, certainly happy to break it down. Without further ado, let us kick it over to Trent Rysmith of the Bloody Elbow. Trent, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We are good. We are good. So, you know, it's a story that uh, we've been monitoring. We've had on our radar for about a month at this point. It is the sports betting and now potentially legal controversy involving the UFC, Derek Minner fight that occurred basically a month ago. So Trent, I I want you to kind of set the stage here for our listeners. We don't often cover UFC and MMA, but when we do, we want to really inform our listeners about how important the topic is. So Trent, take it away, kind of uh, set set the stage for us on November 5th and and how we got to this interesting announcement from the Nevada Gaming Commission uh, this past week. Okay, so November 5th, Derek Minner, and I'm not going to try and pronounce his opponent's name because I would just not be able to do so. But Derek Minner had a fight, and hours before the fight, there was some movement on the line where his opponent went, I think, from a minus 200 favorite up to over minus 400 favorite. And that aroused some suspicion from some watchdogs, and they informed Um, some sports betting sites about this, but I don't think any action really took place. I've calls out to um, DraftKings and FanDuel to see how they handled this, if they paid everything out and how they handled the movement on that, but that's neither here nor there. There was no movement noticed and bets came in heavy on the opponent and bets came even heavier on the opponent to win by first round knockout. Now this guy hadn't had a knockout in the UFC since he signed with the UFC. And I think it was three or four fights. Early on in the fight, Minner was doing okay, but then he threw a kick and he stumbled and it was noticeable that he had a leg injury at that point. The opponent came in, finished the fight in the first round. And the suspicion was that he entered the fight with that leg injury because the kick didn't seem to cause the injury. There was no blocking of the kick. There was no checking of the kick. It didn't land in a weird spot. He just stumbled and suspicion was right away. He went into that fight with an injury for whatever reason, maybe because if you don't fight in the UFC, you don't get paid. That could be a very good reason. But right away, then that made it the movement in the line seemed to make sense to a lot of people. 
And then that's when I think the investigations began. Let me jump in here. So the, the name of the individual here, Derek Minner is obviously important, but the individual that all these investigations are into is a guy by the name of James Krause. So Krause is a former fighter now. He's a coach. So he, he um, you know, had a fairly successful MMA career and now a fairly successful coaching practice. And what's being alleged here, um, you know, and, and Trent, you did a good job, you know, explaining this really in the moments before the fight to have a line movement move that sufficient, right? Move from almost double the moments leading up to a fight tells you Right, that there's some type of suspicious betting pattern. The line obviously moves before the fight. It shouldn't move from minus 200 to minus 400. But then specifically, as you point out, right, the, the specific prop that's being hit, knockout in the first round, also seems odd. And especially it's odd when that bet hits, right? And then it seems like by all indications, there seems like there was a, a prior injury that was undisclosed. Now, who would have known about that? Obviously, the fighter knows about that. Uh, and what we've seen happen in, in the really months since then, you know, Dan and I, uh, we looked into to some extent, I asked my own questions. We're like a pseudo media outlet here. U.S. Integrity is the entity that I, I think uh, spotted these uh, suspicious betting patterns. And what was odd to me, and I'm, you know, I, I watch a good amount of MMA events. I think up until that point, you were as a UFC uh, fighter or someone involved with the event, you did not have the same level of restrictions about betting on the UFC as you do in the NFL or NBA and NFL. And right after that event, the UFC put out a memo that essentially laid out, hey, you should not be betting on other fights on the card. And I'm like, 2022, how do we not have that? And now, since then, the investigation has taken a different turn, right? Now, there are certain provinces in Canada that have banned betting on UFC entirely. James Krause has been kind of uh, ostracized from the entire sport. So we have a guy, Krause, who's getting pretty close to the Pete Rose line. And I can't help but look at the UFC and say like, how in 2022 are we just playing like last second defense, right? This should have been accounted for years. Uh, yeah. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Dan Wallach, that's more in your lane, but I was shocked that this, the UFC is reacting only now to this story. Well, let's talk about the role of James Krause. Can you describe where he fits into this equation? Because we're talking ultimately about someone who sells gambling tips for a living, who's managing a UFC fighter and has knowledge that maybe he has an injury. The fighter has an injury that was never disclosed. So where does Krause fit into all this? Because he's actually at the at the fulcrum of all this activity now, but it's not just a James Krause issue. But how does it begin with Krause? It begins with Krause in August. Krause appears on the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani, and he more or less says that he's making more money betting on MMA than he ever did as a fighter. And so what he has going then is he has a Discord channel where people, you know, subscribe and pay him to give tips, which not a big deal outside the fact that he's a UFC an MMA coach, that's where it becomes a big deal because we know plenty of people give paid tips, but he's an MMA coach, which could have insider information. So he has a Discord channel. He has a YouTube channel that give tips. And he basically says that he is making a lot more money doing that than he ever did as a fighter. And that he is also, I think during that interview said that he's taking money from other people and betting with that money as well. And so that's where it starts. And then that's why suspicion right away, in this case of Minner, goes to Kraus. It's not a far leap. I don't think that anyone took to say, all right, this guy's coach is bragging about making tons of money betting on MMA. Maybe we should look at this guy because he obviously has the information that this fighter was injured before the event. And that's where the suspicion comes to Kraus mainly because he was basically bragging about this Discord channel, and which has now been closed as well as his YouTube channel and his podcasts are also gone. 
You know, it's just absolutely bizarre to me, right? The UFC was owned at one point by an owner of a casino, right? Was it Tillman Fertitta? He owned uh, the Golden Nugget in New Jersey? It was Lorenzo and Frank who owned Red Rocks, I think. Okay. So they're familiar with the concept of compliance, guardrails, safeguards. Prior to November of 2022, which just passed, what kind of compliance or internal you know, mechanisms that the UFC have, because did they even have a policy on the issue of betting? Lorenzo, in addition to owning the casino, Lorenzo was also at one point a member of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. So he has full knowledge of everything that would need to be done here. But to answer the question, there was no policy, never had been. It was shocking. I mean, they had years and years to develop a policy. Smart people run the UFC. Very smart people run that business. That they ignored what every other sport had in place is mind boggling to me. I, it, it just doesn't make sense. And now I think that's come back to bite them because we've had plenty of examples where fighters were betting. Fighters used to post on social media that they were betting on themselves. I have examples in a previous story where a guy showed his betting slips that he lost, but the UFC never did anything about it. And I don't know why. It leads me to wonder, Trent, why are state gambling commissions allowing wagers to be placed on UFC events when the organization doesn't even have a gambling policy? And for all intents and purposes, these fighters could be making bets on not only their own matches and those of other fighters, but inside information could be running rampant in such an incestuous industry that doesn't have a collective bargaining agreement where fighters are not paid proportionately as well as they are in other sports and where the careers don't last as long in the other sports. If you lose a few fights, you're out of contract, you're done. What mm-hmm. are the incentives for a fighter to engage in this type of behavior or, or anyone, manager? You know, there, there seems to be a built-in incentive, I think, given the nature of these relationships for inside information and match fixing to be at a high risk level relative to other sports. Yeah, I mean, there is the in, the inside information alone should have been enough for the UFC to act on this. The ability to to fix our game of fight, I think that's there. I think the UFC relied a little bit on the pride of these fighters in in that that these are it's a different breed of athlete that's going to fight in a in a cage. There's no doubt about that. And I think the pride of winning and losing maybe that's what the UFC relied on. But when a UFC fighter contract starts at ten thousand dollars and the UFC fighters are getting less than twenty percent as a whole of the UFC's revenue. Yeah, there's financial reasons that a a fighter would would consider this. That's hard to deny that. Which brings me to the subject of your pinned tweet. You pinned at the very top of your Twitter profile. If you have information you want to share on the UFC betting gambling issues or tips, text me and you've given a phone number. Have you received any tips via that tip line? You're basically asking fighters or people involved in the industry to come forward and share with you what they know to maybe advance some of the future reporting you're going to be doing on this issue. Have you gotten any any you know tips on this? I have not. And I think the reason for that is fear. The UFC has, because there's no collective bargaining agreement, the UFC can release a fighter for pretty much anything. So if you have a fighter who has a loss, the UFC can just say, all right, you lost, we're going to release you. And so there's fear of repercussions on this. The fighters had who had tried to start a, an association or a union, two of those fighters were released shortly after that started to get some attention. So there's very much a, a fear of the promotion because while the UFC doesn't pay the a lot, it pays the most 
in MMA. And so getting there is the the goal of these fighters and they don't want to lose that perch. So a couple things. I mean, while we're on the topic, right, there's the PFL, there's Bellator, right? You're starting to see at least more of a landscape with potential competitors, but still not the same. And especially with ESPN's deal with UFC exposure is there's no comparison, right? We should mention, which I don't know if we didn't already, Derek Minner, the fighter involved here was also cut. Obviously he lost his, he lost that fight. So maybe he's being cut for that reason. Obviously the guy has a, I think a fairly serious knee injury, which maybe we knew about ahead of time. Maybe we did not, but you know, that's where we stand. You know, I'm, I'm curious to the point, you know, we kind of got to earlier is like, how is it that in 2022, like we've been in legalized sports betting in this world, you know, now for a couple of years, right? Or at least we saw this coming. The baseball prohibitions on betting have existed for 50 years, right? More than that, almost like 100 years. You go back all the way to the Black Sox. You can talk about Tim Donaghy with, uh, you know, the, the crooked bet, talk about point shaving scandals and college basketball. How is it that in 2022, that the UFC is just putting out a memo that is banning other fighters from betting on other fights on the card. That that seems like 10, 20, 30 years. To- I don't know. I really don't know. The UFC, like I said, smart people run that organization. They have been involved with the athletic commission, with gambling. So they know what goes on. That they waited so long is they have not answered the, to that. And when Dana White was asked about it, he said, basically, it's the right thing to do and that it's mostly about optics that it looks bad when they have fighters betting on fights. That's true, but that's not the answer. It's not about optics. It's about getting rid of any suspicion that these fighters are involved in any nefarious actions. And I looked at the NFL, this dates back to with the NFL itself, not the AFL before that, but with NFL, Alex Karras and Paul Horning were suspended for a year for betting on games. And that was in the fifties. And the UFC itself had a betting uh, issue in, I think, 2017 in a South Korean fight. It was over in South Korea. I forget the the names of the two fighters, but one actually got sentenced for attempted fight fixing. Now, they didn't go through with it, but enough got done on the backside that there was enough evidence to charge. And so that happened in 2017. They could have acted then. They could have acted in 2018 when the doors got opened by the Supreme Court to legalize sports betting. They could have done it in 2021 when they signed the 350 reported $350 million deal with DraftKings. There have been many opportunities for the UFC to do this. They just didn't do it until November. Yeah. The only reason I, I bring it up and we, we've addressed it a couple of times, right? The UFC is not a, and for those that are kind of coming new to this, right? Are four major team sports. Every, all of those leagues are unionized in some way, shape or form. Uh, golf, uh, golf is not unionized. Uh, UFC is not unionized, WWE, which is maybe a little bit closer to MMA if we're trying to find a comparison, also not unionized. But with a rule like this, right, that seems to be a rule that would benefit the, you know, the fighters, right? The, the ability to bet. That would seem to be a rule that the UFC would want. They have all the control. There is no union. They should shut that thing off pretty quickly. So I, I'm almost thinking that it's almost laziness as opposed to just some line in the sand that the UFC is drawn because it doesn't benefit them. Allowing fighters to bet on other events doesn't benefit the UFC. It, it They have all the risk and they have almost no gain to, to speak of here. So certainly I find that part to be very concerning, uh, how an, an entity that is now blowing up, reaching you know levels that it's never reached before in an international global sport, you know, the, the sky is the moon, you know, it was, uh, the sky is the limit, whatever they say, but, you know, and then you get here and it's like, I, I don't know, I don't know how this just happened. So it's more... Like we, uh, I guess we should say, Dan and I had, Dan and I did a topic last week on the Yasiel Puig betting saga. You know, it's not, a, it's not a crime to bet on baseball as an active baseball player. It's not, and it's not, a, it's certainly not a crime 
to be betting on the other card when you're a UFC fighter or UFC head coach. The optics are what they are, and then you have to kind of dig in, right? At what point are you making certain advertising claims that maybe you aren't allowed to make? So does DraftKings have potential exposure? Go down the list, does UFC have exposure? If you go back, um, you know, and maybe a story for another time, like even the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal, where there was uh, allegations of, you know, a team getting an unfair advantage, DraftKings was sued, those cases end up getting thrown out, but, you know, it's not going to stop people from filing lawsuits. So, yeah, me personally, I'd be pretty surprised if no lawsuits followed. I'm not sure of the substantive merits of those claims. We have to see what they look like. But yeah, when you have a case like this and you have people losing maybe tens of thousands, if not more dollars wagering on the UFC and something like this comes out, then, uh, you, know, you know, the lawyer's ears start peeking up. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the amount of betting that took place on this fight? Because I, I think this is a class action lawsuit waiting to happen, unlike the Astros case where Major League Baseball was brought in, you know, in, I guess directly, but their their financial relationship was based on sponsorships. I think the UFC has much more direct involvement and more direct exposure from what transpired here. So are we look, this was a headliner fight, wasn't it? No, I think it was pretty low on the card. I think that was one of the reasons you saw such a jump in the line movement. It was was the uh, this was not going to be a heavily bet fight. And because of that, I think even a little bit of well, not a little, but a lot of money coming in that late. The line was just going to move just because this wasn't a big fight. It didn't have a lot of eyeballs on it. And so a lot of money comes in. That's going to really make that line jump. And I think that's what what got the attention here was that, I mean, if you would, if this would have been a a main event, well, then again, more money, probably more money probably would have came in and the line would have probably jumped anyway. But yeah, this wasn't a fight. I think that would have been heavily bet. Uh, up until maybe that insider information came out, then it's going to pick up. How will this impact the UFC as an organization relative to its standing with other mixed martial art organizations? I mean, Bellator was quick to kind of seize on the moment and say that they supported the regu- the regulators' actions taken in Ontario. Is this potentially, you know, a, a Pete Rose moment for the UFC where people could begin to question whether they have their house in order and whether the games or the matches are on the level? What's the risk here to the UFC going forward? My gut tells me that this is going to kind of be, from what I gather, with the situation with the Karras and Horning situation, was that the NFL took that opportunity by by banning those two fighter, um, players for a year to use it as a PR moment to say, all right, we dealt with this. We have our house in order. Look what we did. And that worked because it was... How many years? Not until I think this year, 2022, was another NFL player suspended for gambling on football. Legally. Right. Which was, <laughs> but that's in that, but they have that written. You cannot bet on football. That's in their, in their CBA. So you can argue that either way, but it's in the CBA. But yeah, so I think the UFC will walk away from this, not unscathed, but I think James Krause will end up being the scapegoat here. If he's found to have done this, then it's not a scapegoat. But regardless, I think James Krause is the one that's going to pay the price. The UFC will use this to spin it because the UFC has a very strong PR arm and it has a lot of media members who will like who do the bidding of the UFC. It's just the nature of the sport. So I think the UFC walks away with this, get their hands slapped, but walks away pretty much unscathed. I do have questions into both Bellator and PFL to see if they have language in a code of conduct for betting on fights. I just sent those out so I 
won't, don't want to say anything about that, but the questions are out there. If they respond, I will report on that. But yeah, this is um, not good. It's not good, but I think the UFC is going to walk away, not unscathed, but unharmed in the big picture. Okay. This is a story that I think we're just at the beginning of. You've been you've been writing about this going back several months. And mm-hmm. it seems like you're you're coming out with a new story every couple of days. Where do you see the next tentacles of this investigation going? I know the Nevada State Athletic Commission has an investigation into that. And I think their investigation for the most part is on men are not reporting that he was injured before the fight on his medicals, which every fighter has to fill out a medical form and say, I have this injury. The opportunity there though is to lie is, well, we see it. So I think that's the focus on the NSAC right now is what did men are withhold? And I think that's going to open up some issues with the athletic commission because fighters go into fights injured or hurt all the time. It's just the nature of the sport. And so I think that's a problem. That's a big picture problem. The UFC has problems with the two Canadian provinces. They're going to have to convince them that they are above board here. And I think that's going to be, while not the big story, I think that's going to be the story to watch. How does the UFC convince Ontario and Alberta that they are above board? What safeguards are they going to put in to convince those two provinces to allow betting on UFC fights again? And I know that New Jersey, as ESPN reported, that New Jersey has banned betting on James Krause coached fighters. But now that he's suspended, that part is probably out of the picture because there's not going to be James Krause coached fighters, really. So I think the UFC's big picture problem here is convincing the public that they're above board, but more so convincing those two provinces, hey, this is what we put in place. This is why we're safe. This is why you can trust us. And that's uh, that's the big hill to climb. Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Uh, it's a story that people should be following. And again, we, we try to stay on top of these kind of like ongoing trends and where the industry is going to go. And again, I'm just in shock that in 2022, we're having the conversation that UFC doesn't know how to handle what their their betting guidelines. So let's hope we have someone step out from behind the fold and, and get behind it. But at a minimum, it looks like UFC is seeming to do the right thing now on their own uh, volition with uh, New, New Jersey and obviously now Nevada. Tell everybody where they can find you. You can find me on Bloody Elbow or uh, uh, Twitter at Trent Reinsmith, T-R-E-N-T, R-E-I-N-S-M-I-T-H. Trent, pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. Glad to talk to you guys. Thanks, Trent. Thank you so Thanks. much. So that was Trent Reinsmith of the Bloody Elbow. Trent, again, I think did a fantastic job breaking it down. And, and you can look out for more of Trent's work. If you didn't catch his Twitter handle, you can find it in our show notes. Dan, I think moving forward, we talked a little about it offline. I would be surprised. I would be very surprised if a lawsuit didn't follow uh, this particular case. We talked about it briefly with Trent, but... The Houston Astros sign stealing saga. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you just want to file a lawsuit. There, as we say on the show, there was no bar to the courthouse steps. I don't think there would be a successful lawsuit here, at least not one that I'm envisioning right now. It's not to say there might one might not present itself, but as of as of now, I could see one being filed for the purpose of kind of putting pressure on the UFC and of DraftKings to maybe expose what went on behind the scenes. It would very much surprise me if a lawsuit was not filed. Again, I just I find it so odd, so odd that we are in 2022 talking about the lack of restrictions on you know, fighters and coaches, UFC fighters and coaches with very much the potential for inside information to be able to bet on these UFC events. So I, I'd be very surprised if, if the lawsuit didn't. Maybe, 
maybe we're talking about a negligence case, right? I mean, Major League Baseball was a little bit further removed from the, you know, from the cheating scandal, right? But here, the MMA stages this event. They are the promoter of the event, and they have no guardrails or safeguards or policies that restrict insider information being shared, betting. I think a much stronger case can be made to successfully assert standing against the UFC in a in a hypothetical lawsuit, class action lawsuit that would be brought here. But you know, this is really the going to be the first of you know probably many more cheating or betting scandals because with regulated betting comes more scrutiny, and with more scrutiny, these types of activities may have escaped detection previously, but now a, a spotlight, a bright spotlight, will be shown will be shown on on these types of actions for the betterment of the sport in the long run. But I'm sure we'll be talking about other betting scandals in the years to follow. Okay, so that'll do it for another episode of Conduct Detrimental. We'll keep tabs on everything we discussed today. And we should we should have another episode coming out this week, potentially on the college sports landscape. We'll see what avails itself. For Dan, myself, the Conduct Detrimental family, we'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. 